I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half as Well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like. Explained half as well as you deserve. Okay, this is episode four. We have finally reached the final chapters of The Hobbit. Um, And disclaimer before we start, we're a little bit sick today. Yeah, we uh, finally caught Corona. So we are quarantined at home. Quarantined at home. Podcasting. Luckily gives us plenty of time to record and get it out there. But um, if you hear us sniffling or anything like that, we are a little sick today. Yes, we are. Are you going to be able to do it? Yeah. Okay. You know, we split these books up kind of by quarters. And so this really kind of flew by. Yeah, absolutely. I. It's funny, um, you know, The Hobbit is not a long book by any means, um, but in my head, I was making it a much bigger story. And I, I think sort of it, it, it kind of goes on slowly for a while. And then suddenly the, the climax just happens yeah. and goes by mm-hmm. really quickly. Totally. So our first chapter this week was uh, The Gathering of Clouds. This chapter starts off, we get more play with the birds. Uh, the thrush is trying to communicate to the dwarves. Uh, we last left off with Fire and Water, which unlike the rest of the novel, um, takes place completely from far a totally away. Totally different perspective. <laughs> totally different yeah. perspective. Not with the Hobbit, um, Bilbo, or the dwarves it's he is traveling It's the most with. Hobbitless chapter in The Hobbit. Absolutely. So then we snap right back, uh, and we're talking about birds again. The thrush is there to communicate. Uh, yeah, he's just running back and forth uh, from Lake Town to the Lonely Mountain with all this info. The real unsung hero of the Truly. Of the book. No one talks about the thrush enough. Yeah. Um, um, really. he, he helps them get in there. He helps uh, Bard find the weak spot, uh, comes back. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, the thrush is, is, is trying to communicate with the dwarves. Um, and Balin is like, I, I can't speak thrush. <laughs> Um, and so the thrush goes off and finds the most elderly and decrepit raven, uh, to come in and sort of translate the story. Um, and I have a question cause I've, yeah. I've read this a lot and I've actually never known how to pronounce his name. And I know you were listening to the audiobook by Andy Serkis. So how is the raven's name pronounced? Yeah. So in the audiobook read by Andy Serkis, he says rock, uh, which I think is sort of like rock. Oh, that's really neat. I always was thinking like Roak or yeah. Roke or something yeah. like that. Uh, Roak is definitely how I would pronounce it just looking at it, but I think it's supposed to be more like Rock. <laughs> that's really funny. Um, um, yeah, so he brings up Rock and uh, Rock starts speaking in language, just language that Bilbo can understand. Yeah, and he's supposedly a raven of great size, and he makes makes me think of, like, the eagles, mm-hmm. like, but just yeah. a raven version, um, which I think is pretty neat that there's these different giant birds. Absolutely. I, I think it's really funny how different types of birds are characterized in this section of the book. Bilbo sort of questions Balin's, like, desire to find a raven <laughs> as, like, didn't you get upset at the ravens that passed us earlier? And he's like, those were crows. And um, it, it's just a really cute you know i i think it fix fits in really well uh with the storybook yeah there's all this bird lore and it almost makes me wish that radagast was in the story more mm-hmm. um i think that would have been cool but one thing i noted uh this read around that i just didn't notice in past readings was 
the fact of how when Thrain was king under the mountain, birds, especially ravens, would bring to him news from throughout mm-hmm. the lands, which a lot of the dwarves, their names especially come from Norse mythology. Right. Uh, like I think like Balin, uh, Thorin, these are, these are all names like from like epic poems mm-hmm. of, uh, dwarves and stuff. And what this reminds me a lot of, I don't know the exact names of like the ravens and stuff, but is of Odin. Yes. I was o- just about to say. Odin always had like, what was it? Two ravens on his shoulder that would go while he was like, uh, in his great halls or whatever, they would go into Midgard, the like essentially middle earth, the world of mortals and get news and bring them back to his halls. Yes. And so I just always thought that was really interesting, especially with Thrain's son being Thror, who sounds a lot like <laughs> right. Thor. And yeah. so with Thrain, I get big Odin vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I personally love both crows and ravens um, for different reasons. Uh, so I, I, I just love this bird mm-hmm. being in the story. Yeah. So this old raven tells them basically what just happened in Lake Town. Um, and that Smaug is dead. Yeah, which comes as a big shock to them. Yeah, absolutely. They uh, were they were sitting there like huddling the whole time in fear of him coming back, but it's like, nope, he's he's dead. And with this, they they realize, hey, now that the dragon's gone, we have to defend the mountain from other people. Yeah, like news will spread. Right. So then they send messages to Thorin's cousin Dane in the Iron Hills, who is a dwarf of great renown, who has a lot of followers and stuff. And if you kind of remember the dwarves talking about the battle at Moria mm-hmm. and uh, like Azog who killed Thorin's grandfather in the books, Dane is the one who uh, actually had killed Azog in that battle. Mm-hmm. He did that when he was a very young dwarf. And so he won a lot of renown through that. So even though Thorin is the heir and Dane is kind of of his own line, but still of the line of Durin, uh, yeah, he still seems to have like a lot of his own dwarves that follow him, and he's just a very well-respected dwarf. And already in this section, we're seeing the dragon sickness of the treasure start to take its hold over Thorin. Totally. Uh, he's getting cagier, he's a little more abrupt with everyone. So yeah, now that Smaug is gone and the treasure is left unguarded, he's like, I have to find the Arkenstone, which is, you know, the family jewel of his house. Right. Right, and we start to realize that uh, not only is the Arkenstone an important part of the treasure, it is the thing that he is searching for. Yes. Uh, he almost cares not for the rest of the treasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this takes us um, really well into the next chapter, A Thief in the Night, which is all around the Arkenstone. And, you know, like how we talked earlier about Bilbo's guilt about it, and then we're starting to see Thorin's corruption coming to a head where Bilbo's, like, afraid to reveal to Thorin about this and then yeah. we have all these elves and dwarves now coming and things are looking very if tense very tense yeah we start this chapter off with uh the arrival of bard um and the wood elves um and it, it they do not have a warm welcome at all basically uh Thorin has taken the place of Smaug as dragon on the mountain. He's yeah, guarding very, his treasure. And... Yeah. Um, he's very threatening to them. And under like on one hand, I totally understand it, right? He can't find his jewel that he needs. Um, and a bunch of armed people <laughs> show up suddenly. And they're basically demanding part of the treasure um, because of the reawakening of Smaug and the, the desolation he's brought onto Lake Town. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of unfortunate. The dwarves, with their quest here, do uh, hold some responsibility and blame for that. And so I think there's a reasonable expectation of compensation from Bard. Absolutely. Oh, oh my gosh. I, I think that's reasonable. And I also think it's it's, it's semi-reasonable that Thorne's like, um, th- you didn't come here in peace. You're a literal army. Yeah. Although I will say, like, they they assumed the dwarves were dead. Yeah. Um, they weren't going there kind of to, like, kill the dwarves. No, And, absolutely. like, steal their treasure in a very malicious way. You know, they were just going to check things out. But and it's, they're it's... being wary, I think. But, yeah, there is this sort of, like, once they find out that there are people there. It's just a scenario that paranoid minds <laughs> are not going to do well in. And as soon as they kind of hit that place where Thorne is suspicious of them and they are demanding money, they're at an impasse completely like Thorne absolutely refuses and then they're like well we're gonna have to kind of wait out see what happens yeah you're under siege now so but you know Thorne's got this trick up his sleeve which is his cousin Dane on the way with an army yes which they do not know about yet yes so to give a little bit more context tying this back into the Silmarillion one fan debate I see a lot is is the Arkenstone one of the three Silmarils from the Silmarillion Specifically, the third Silmaril that is tossed into a gaping chasm of lava and taken, swallowed up by the earth. And then, like, years later, it is, like, in Erebor. That's where that chasm was. And there's this huge debate because, on the surface level, the Arkenstone seems exactly like a Silmaril. Right. It is this shining jewel uh, that shines with, like, this white light and takes in light and reflects it back in hues more beautiful than before, which is almost exactly like the Silmarils. However, then there are these other definitive statements in The Hobbit and the Silmarillion that totally refute this. Right. Like the fact that it says the dwarves created and fashioned the Arkenstone. Right. Well, we know from the Silmarillion they were made from the elf Feanor. So automatically there's these things that just do not line Line up. up at all. However, I think it's also worth keeping in mind, at the time he was also writing these other legends that became the Silmarillion. And at the time, I don't think Tolkien meant for these to be necessarily in the same world. And I've said this before, but he kind of does this (laughs) self-plagiarization. Yeah. Um, He was telling these stories to his kids, but he was also writing these very serious myths and legends. And so he borrows a lot and kind of reuses some names. And like, I don't think Elrond was supposed to be the Elrond of this book. Mm. At the end of the Silmarillion, at the time when he wrote The Hobbit, Elrond goes on to become the first king of Numenor. So how could he be the Lord of Rivendell if he was also, well, it was a different version of Elrond, just a name that he borrowed. But then later when he wrote The Lord of the Rings, he had to reconcile a lot of these things. (laughs) And so he kind of like cloned Elrond, gave him a twin brother he became the first king of Numenor, which allowed Elrond to remain the Lord of Rivendell that we know in right, The Hobbit. Right, right. So I think it's conceivable that at one point, the Arkenstone was a Silmaril, and then he had to definitively end that. Or at the very least, he was self-plagiarizing in a story that it wasn't canon to the other story. Yeah. So I'm going to give a very elvish... Uh, <laughs> answer to this debate and the answer is both yes and no yeah it's like no it can't be but in a sense yes it is yeah i think what we can definitely say for sure about um whether this is a silmaril is it comes from the same urge that tolkien has to like 
create these beautiful objects that are made by people and then like lusted after. Yes. Yeah, it definitely it holds a very similar place as the ring even and and the Silmarils. Yeah, exactly. And so even if it's not literally a Silmaril, it is one in spirit. Right, I would say. absolutely. Um, and, and even I would say down to uh, there's something that Thorin says in this chapter that is almost exactly like what Feanor says about his Silmarils. For the Arkenstone of my father, he said, is worth more than a river of gold in itself. And to me, it is beyond price. That stone of all the treasure I name unto myself, and I will be avenged on anyone who finds it and withholds it. This is almost just basically a shortened version <laughs> of the Sons of Feanor and their oath. Yeah. I've always found that uh, little tidbit to be pretty interesting, especially in this debate of, is the Arkenstone a Silmaril? Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely treated like one. Right. Um, so seeing this tense situation, Bilbo realizes he's the only one who can possibly break it, which I think is, is, you know, we're seeing this theme continually throughout the Hobbit where he he might not be the most capable or the most strong, but in so many situations, it turns out that he is the only one who can change the outcome. Yeah. Through his just like, uh, nimbleness and his (laughs) luck is a major theme that, uh, keeps coming up with Bilbo and his, uh, just ingenuity in the moment. Right. Um, he's put in a position where a lot of times, like when the dwarves were captured and he happened to, you know, have the ring on and not be taken and then right. he could sneak around the halls. He's the only one that could have helped him out of there. Exactly. And since he already has the Arkenstone, he decides I'm going to leave in the middle of the night and go talk to the men down there and the elves and try to broker some amount of peace. Uh, so he goes and does that. Um, and they are very amenable to his suggestion. They are not trying to starve the dwarves, um, or start a war. They're not interested at all in, in any of that. They just sort of want to come to a a place of agreement. Yeah. They want their proper due. And, uh, not only does Bilbo give them the Arkenstone, but he also informs them that Dane is on his way with his Mm -hmm. own host of, of dwarven warriors. Yeah. And yeah, one thing I really like about how this conflict between them is resolved is that it's through trickery. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about how Tolkien had earlier designs on Bilbo being the one to slay Smaug, mm-hmm. which would have been a very traditional like hero role. But Bilbo's not a traditional hero. No. He's like, you know, he's kind of more of a trickster character where he solves and beats the bad guy through outwitting them or like and in this sense thorin's kind of the bad guy and bilbo has now outwitted him and kind of created this little scheme that ultimately will like hopefully prevent war but then it still kind of does come to like very tense things but i think he this is a a smart solution yeah it's the best thing he can do in the situation uh and he runs into gandalf gandalf is back yeah, just when, he, when <laughs> just, he's when he's just needed. Just when he's needed, um, and then that brings us to the clouds burst. Yeah, the battle of the five armies. Yes. So, um, this part's pretty sad, you know, as totally. far as Thorin realizing that he's been betrayed by Bilbo, um, even if that is for the best of of everyone. Um, he's he he sort of. Yeah, Bilbo did what he had to do, but, you know, at the cost of his friendship with Thorin, which was just starting to warm up. Like, um, well, ever since he rescued him from the Elven King, I mean, all the way up to just 
recently receiving that Mithril shirt. Right. Um, it is really sad that Bilbo then betrays him. Yeah, exactly. So he, he casts Bilbo out to the men and the elves and uh, promises that he'll give him his, his gold that he's due eventually. <laughs> but um, only after they they deal with the rest of what's going on. Um, and it looks like things are about to get really bad. Um, Dane's sh- soldiers show up. But right as things are about to potentially get a little tricky between everyone, that's when the orcs show up. Yes. Yep. And it's just kind of this thing, like, everyone hates orcs, so we're just going to drop whatever we're doing and fight them. Yeah, there's very little uh, necessary coordination. Basically, the goblins and the wargs show up, and it's just like, okay, game on. (laughs) Like, Yeah, I like how... I mean, honestly, like the build up to this climax with like them arguing over what's due to us and what you know, right. what is my birthright. It's like kind of the most complex Tolkien gets into uh-huh. these sort of like heirlooms and the economics of things and blah 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 blah. So it's like he sets up this very complex situation and then immediately simplifies it. Right, absolutely um, into into very strong good and evil. Good versus evil. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I think was kind of needed at this point. It was like all the good guys were like, it's like, why are we fighting? We're all on the same side. Yeah, And so absolutely. then it's like, oh, thank God the orcs showed up. Yeah, it's sort of like we see what Bilbo is feeling on the inside then blasted out to the external. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, the whole time he's just like, I don't understand why we need to be so, you know, you can have the Arkenstone and most of your gold. You just need to give some of your, yeah, <laughs> your exactly. wealth to these people because not only is Lake Town broken, but something I didn't mention before is that the stores of Dale are also mixed into that treasure. So literally, yeah, Bard's Bar- is inheritance. Is his birthright. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Um, and so, so for Bilbo, he's just there as this semi-neutral you know, neutral character saying, why does it have to be so complicated? And exactly. <laughs> it's immediately made more simple. Yeah. But yeah, so the orcs show up. And, you know, uh, I think we mentioned this in the earlier episode. This all goes back to when Gandalf slew the great goblin. Mm-hmm. And the orcs are pissed. So they all start gathering up their forces. And then, you know, they finally attack right when this is happening. And ironically, if they would have just waited, they probably all would have killed each other off. At right. least the dwarves of Erebor would have been killed. Right. And the goblins would have kind of had their vengeance without having to have a hand in it. Yeah. But it's the, their arrival that really causes them to gather forces, which it's still a a, a, a tricky battle. And they, the oh, odds definitely. are against them really badly. Yeah. But they are able to eventually defeat them. So that really kind of ties back again to that evil being self-defeating. Yeah. Like if they could hold their horses, you know, not or <laughs> if they could hold their wargs, uh then, you know, maybe they would have gotten what they wanted. But instead they attack, the the elves go for them first. Uh, Basically, the battle is fought in these waves where the upper ground is sort of passed back and forth and uh, it's getting really hairy. And it seems pretty likely that the good guys are going to lose. Then Thorin actually comes out to rally pretty much everyone in the valley. Right. And, like, I think it even says, like, even Bard had trouble, like, restraining some of his men on the ridge. Like, they went down to Thorin's call, which I find very impressive. Right. And so it is this moment where the tide starts to turn, but then ultimately they're still um, overwhelmed. I think it's still a very impressive charge on Thorin's part because, again, yeah. elves, men all rally to—dwarves all rally to his call. Right. 
And so I think this is like this is the beginning of Thornton's redemption yeah. as a character. But then they're still surrounded and the orcs start coming down from over top of the mountain and the ridges and then this is really when the eagles show up and start casting them down. And I mean, the eagles, again, like Lord of the Rings, they come in at the end <laughs> yeah. to save everyone. Right at the end. And as soon as the eagles show up, Bilbo is knocked unconscious. Yeah, so he never really gets to experience the end of the battle. Which I think really ties into Tolkien's own views on war, which were that of like disgust and that war is not something really to be celebrated or romanticized so i think it's very telling that a good bit of the battle our protagonist just doesn't view and he's told later about it and even when he's there he's like i think he doesn't mention that bilbo did really not like the look of people killing each other no absolutely and I, I think this is like when Tolkien's own experiences, like in World War One, kind of bleed into the story a little bit. Just his distaste for violence, even though lots of violence happens in these stories, um, he doesn't linger on it. He doesn't. It's broad strokes. He, yeah. I mean, he describes this battle in um, sort of vague terms about like the movements of the different factions of the armies. You know, I would say this is a, a big difference between Tolkien's writing, at least in The Hobbit. And more modern fantasy works, you know, now, like, (laughs) most of the books I read have pretty detailed movement by movement actions by your main characters in in a battle. Um, And so you hear exactly what they're doing. And and that just doesn't happen here. We're we're hearing big, broad strokes, almost documentarian style. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, and one thing I don't think we talked about was the leader of these orcs is this guy named Bolg, who we're just kind of introduced to. And I always wanted to know more about him because he's the son of Azog, which is the old orc chieftain that Dane slew at the Battle of Moria, which if you've seen the movies, you know, they they made Azog still <laughs> they, alive and made him the main... They do a lot of stuff. <laughs> they do a lot of stuff with Azog, but, you know, he's kind of just exists to be this orc chieftain who was killed and now his son wants revenge on the dwarves. So I always wanted more of Bulk because I always thought um, an orc wanting to avenge his father is like probably the most noble motivation we've seen for an orc. Yeah, it's a little different than avenging like the great goblin, which is a leader, but just, you know, a familial. And and Bulk is definitely a leader and Azog was. So I don't know exactly how the hierarchy of orcs broke down with them and the great goblin. Like, I think the great goblin is described as having a huge head. I think Bulk is described as having or maybe Azog is in the appendices of Lord of the Rings. So I think there's some maybe familial connection between <laughs> yeah. them. But anyway, like I just I I've always found that really fascinating and Bolg is like barely mentioned in this battle even though he's the leader. Yeah. Um I kind of almost wish there was more about him. He was more of like the real villain after Smaug. But yeah, then this leads us to the next chapter where Bilbo wakes up and he finds out what happened with Bolg and the rest of the armies and, and stuff. And speaking of sort of the violence, the first thing he notices when he wakes up is that he's just surrounded by dead goblins. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's not a living goblin around him. So uh, this is where he finds out that Thorin is, is pretty injured at yeah. this point. Yeah, he finds out that there was this last big stand around Thorin, uh, who was with Bolg's bodyguard, and then Bayorn shows up yeah. by himself, and he's, like, grown to, like, this vast size, and he just, like, totally fucks everybody up and <laughs> crushes Bolg. Yeah, um, it, I, I found something interesting about just, it's so swiftly carried out um, that Bolg is killed. 
Yeah. Basically, Bayorn shows up and he crushes Bolg. Bolg's introduced. <laughs> Bayorn shows up. Bolg's dead. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then he Bayorn carries uh, Thorin's body out of the fight. Now, after the battle, Bilbo has found out that Thorin has requested his presence as he is not in great shape. You know, this is pretty sad given their last sad scene together where Thorin has disowned Bilbo, basically. Um, And this is him sort of admitting his fault before he dies and uh, sharing his respects with with Bilbo. And I I think something he says in the scene really struck me, uh, and I, I like it a lot. If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. I'm really glad that you used that quote, because if you didn't, I was going to. Yeah. I think it's one of the uh, quintessential Tolkien quotes. I put that up there with, like, not all those who wander are lost. Yeah. And, like, um, I wish this didn't happen in my time. So do all Mm -hmm. who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. Um, I love that quote, and I think that really just gets to yeah. the heart of not just this story, but a lot all of his stories. Again, they all revolve around the three Silmarils, the Arkenstone, the One Ring, and this possessive and greed that follows with it, right? And the evil that follows that. And again, the reason the Hobbits are such strong heroes is because they value food and cheer, and um, they're not greedy people. Yeah, I um, really appreciate. Uh, just the the concept of that and you know it <laughs> I don't know how you can write a character learning a virtuous lesson better than having it be their last words right exactly. before they <laughs> say goodbye to the world yeah so uh, I, I, I definitely think that is the moral of uh, this story that, yeah. that we are here and I, I really like Thorin I think he's people talk about Tolkien being all his characters being black and white but I think along with uh Someone like Boromir, or even Boromir's father, Denethor, uh, Thorin is one of these gray characters that is throughout most of the book pretty, you know, morally just and respectable. And he's kind of one of the first of the dwarves that warms up to Bilbo. Mm -hmm. And so we see all these things, and then we just start to see once he gets to Lake Down and the idea of taking his treasure back, he starts to get kind of more haughty and... Then we see the dragon sickness take hold and he gets more greedy. And then, like, again, the Battle of the Five Armies is the beginning of his redemption and he fights this epic battle. Uh, he doesn't kill Bolg, but he, you know, was in that battle. And and then he has this, like, very touching moment with Bilbo. And I don't know, I just it takes you on such a range throughout this journey with Bilbo that I just really appreciate the moral complexity of Thorin. Mm-hmm. He's a guy that really wants to honor his family and his birthright. He's felt very wronged his whole life. And so when he's like kind of in the midst of coming into his own, he kind of uh, gets way too possessive of his birthright. But like you kind of can't blame him almost, even if it is some of the dragon evil working on him. So I just, I really like that he had a good ending. It reminds me a lot of Boromir's ending. He dies, but he dies a heroic death. Right. Uh, he's uh, redeemed at the end, even like Aragorn says, like he was not conquered at the end. Right. And um, that's how I feel about this scene a lot. And I just, um, it's cool. yeah. good character. Yeah. And so after that, uh, Bilbo starts making the trip back home. 
Um, yep, there and back again. Yep, absolutely. So he travels back. Uh, they stop by Bayorn's place and also Rivendell. Yeah. On the I, I like how they celebrate Yule yeah. <laughs> at Bayorn's with like all the neighboring woodmen. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, Bayorn seems like a very standoffish guy, but it seems like after the goblins of the Misty Mountains have been defeated, now everyone's celebrating. Right. And they're like, Bayorn's like, party at my house. <laughs> um, which is like really weird considering how standoffish he was. Yeah. And basically it's just a, a pleasant journey back. You know, I, I think Bilbo's pretty tired at this point. He's pretty over it. Even the Took yeah. side of him is tired. <laughs> and the and the Baggins side yeah. is winning out more and, and more And I mean, I think, day. you know, in a similar way that we see Frodo kind of being emotionally scarred from his journeys i mean i do think bilbo the battle of the five armies left its mark on him and now that it's over the dwarves have their stuff he just wants to be home oh. and like away from violence and all that and yeah and he's only taken um he, he doesn't take like his full amount of treasure he takes a chest of silver and a chest of gold um and he has his mithril shirt uh does he have anything other than that i can't remember he has sting he has sting and yeah, and his hood and cloak that he took. Yeah, but pretty modest um, winnings. Yeah, very modest. After Bayorns, they go to Rivendell then. There's a few things I noticed. Bilbo talks about how he got all caught up to date on what Gandalf was all right, up to. Right, They say that he was at a council of wizards and then they drove the necromancer off. And they said that hopefully that area of Mirkwood will have peace. And But Elrond seems to kind of have doubts he says but i wonder if we will ever truly be free of him he says i think like many an age will pass before i think we're truly free of him which is you know it's not really true they're going to deal with him in a few decades right but um he has no way of knowing that right now because they have no they don't know that bilbo's ring is sauron's so you know there's a little foreboding there to the future but all in all bilbo's like screw this i want to go home yeah and then they come home and he finds that everyone thinks he's dead because he's been gone for over a year. Um, and they're now kind of ransacking his place and his his belongings, belongings are up for auction. The Sackville Bagginses are at it again, trying Those to get bastards, uh, trying to get his hobbit hole. And yeah, it seems there. like everyone, you know, everyone wants Baggins. Yeah, it's, it's a nice place. Yeah. Um, and so we're kind of launched right back into this small minded hobbit world where it's a very, uh, you know, local um, attitude. Yeah, I mean, didn't they say that, I mean, just because of, like, the paperwork and stuff, like, the, yeah. it was, like, years before people even admitted Acknowledged Bilbo he was, was alive. alive, even though it's, like, I'm obviously yeah. alive. Yeah, absolutely. It's really funny that, you know, they they can see him, but they, they believe the conceit that he's dead um, because it's been declared, so. They want to make off with his goods, Oh, absolutely. Too, so That's, like, a big like, part of it. So yeah, it's kind of like a little funny ending. And then, you know, we hear about how he catches up with like Gandalf and Balin throughout the years and, you mm-hmm. know, they come over and we find out that, you know, Dale has been rebuilt and Bard is, you know, a fine ruler there and Dane has been a fine king under the mm-hmm. mountain. Happily ever after. Yeah, I mean, it is... In a very is, classic fairy tale fashion. It is like a very children appropriate book all the way throughout. Um, even I would say through the battles, like they're very, you know, mild when it comes to book violence. So since we're at the end, do you just want to kind of wrap up your thoughts on this book in general? Yeah. So reading it again now, 
Um, I definitely found it a lot more interesting than I did when I was 13. This just was not anything (laughs) like what I wanted to read when I was 13, which is kind of surprising to me. Um, I was into fantasy epics, but like I've mentioned before, at the time I I really needed something with a romantic storyline in it um, to to kind of latch onto it. Uh, Now I like to think I've developed a little bit more of a focus for things um that yeah i I enjoy this one it's very mythic in the sense that it's a very virtuous story um there's clearly like morals that tolkien's trying to impress upon the reader as it goes which he isn't too subtle about no yeah he's not too subtle at all about that it's very clear because this is for kids you know yeah um, and it's not very complex either as, as much as, you know, there are kind of crazy situations or, um, you know, as we were talking about the complexity of dealing with the, tr- the treasure under the mountain, yeah. um, most of the morality kind of breaks down into this, like, yeah, don't be an asshole. Pretty much. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's one thing that I've always noted about the Hobbit. I think I said that in the first episode too, is uh, unlike his other stories like the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings, which can be extremely sprawling. And uh, this is very concise to the point, short, quick, and easy. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the appeal of the book. Yeah. So while I don't reread it as much, I mean, as I could, honestly, with how easy it is to read, that's one thing I've just always really appreciated. And I noticed that again this time around. I've also probably read this... the least of Tolkien's works. Um, I read it a lot as a kid, but since I've gotten more into Lord of the Rings and then especially the Silmarillion as I've gotten older, those have kind of attracted a lot more of my attention as I think they did Tolkien. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. But um, <laughs> that's like kind of more where his head was at and also mine as well. Um, but I don't want to discount the Hobbit. And yeah. so I've actually reread it I think only once before since reading the Silmarillion. Really? So that really? was that was a very interesting experience. Kind of again seeing oh, wow. these remnants of these characters like the orcs and the trolls and the spiders and the eagles. It all kind of takes on a whole new meaning once you understand all the historical depth behind yeah. these creatures and the forces of evil and good in this world. It's really truly the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings is only the very tip tip of the iceberg well let's put a seal on it that's the end of our hobbit stuff yeah i hope y'all enjoy it either reading along or listening along to us walk through the books and give our own differing thoughts on it one a uh an expert well learned in the lore (laughs) and one uh kind of new to it yeah we are going to be heading right into the Fellowship of the Ring next week. The first chunk of chapters will range from chapter one, a long expected party, to chapter six, the Old Forest. If you haven't already, please follow us on our Twitter account, which is at half as well pod. You can also find more information on our website, halfaswellpodcast.com. I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half, half as, as Well. well.